All right, good morning. This morning we'll be in Luke, and we will be in chapter 17. Luke 17, and we'll start in verse 11. Luke 17, 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the rest that you give us by your presence. Thank you that your presence reminds us that we can face uncertain days because you live. Thank you that you are alive, living, sovereign over this world. God, that we can find our joy, our hope in you. God, thank you that when we come back to you with a heart of worship, through a heart of thankfulness, God, our heart is truly blessed and satisfied. That we are reminded of your goodness, of your faithfulness, our inadequacy, but your surpassing adequacy that meets our every need through your name. Lord, thank you that in you we find a heart of worship, It is a worship that fills us with joy and thankfulness. And joy and thankfulness is something that the enemy cannot rob us of because it is found in your name. We thank you for this truth of your word today, Father. May you teach us through your spirit. May our hearts be open to receive the truth that you have for us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Charlie is still... Well, I guess he's not still gone. He's, he's returned from Japan, um, but he's asked us to continue on in his stead while he recovers from this minor thing called jet lag, I guess. Um, so we're happy to do that, John and I, for these last couple of weeks, but I think he'll be back with us tomorrow. Um, and this morning, and this, these past couple of weeks, uh, still going through camp, like, like Mark has said, one of the overarching themes and, and truths God has been just continually sticking onto my heart is to fight for a heart of thankfulness. To fight for a heart that worships the Lord in every circumstance by coming back and thanking Him. Not necessarily, again, that this is particularly happening to me, but thankful to Him that He knows what is happening to me and He is able in His sovereignty to work it and use it for good. And that brings a heart of rest to me in the midst of um, many un- uncertain days with many uncertain people. You know, every week we have campers coming. We don't necessarily know all of them or what everything that's been happening in their life, the emotional baggage that they bring. And that, you know, when that interacts with other campers, you know, sometimes it's like chemical reactions. You know, sometimes it's good and it's healthy and it's great. And sometimes it's like fire and explosions. And, you know, having to work with that, 
I'm always reminded that the Lord knows it. The Lord has brought this together for good, and he's going to work it out, and I can thank him for that. Someone much older and wiser than me once said, to a degree, that the expression of thankfulness is the chief language of worship. So our worship to the Lord, it begins with a heart of thankfulness. And the degree that we find ourselves thankful to the Lord, I think is the degree that we are really entering into what true worship is in spirit and truth. It's the psalmist in Psalm 95, verses 1 through 3, that writes, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. The psalmist here notes that when we enter God's presence with thankfulness and praise on our lips, then true, the true joy of worshiping the Lord will be present within us as well. So as we are fighting to worship the Lord in every circumstance, it begins by coming back into the Lord's presence and saying, God, thank you that you are a great God. Thank you that you are a great king above all other gods. May I start with that knowledge as I lay my supplications and my request down at your feet. The opposite of thankfulness is, I think, when I think of it, selfishness. It's rooted in a heart of pride. And a heart that is selfish, that leads to pride, does not exalt the Lord. No, worship cannot go past our own head, really. It cannot go past ourselves. And when we find that worship is centered in ourself, then we find ourselves worshiping something that is constantly in flux, constantly in motion. And one who, if you are agreeing with me, uh, cannot really even be trustworthy of our own praise. We fall short of the glory of God. So I find myself in Luke 17 with these ten lepers. That are here. And I want to start just a little bit of the background here in John 17. So we're just jumping in right into the middle of this gospel account of the life of Jesus. And we know from the synoptic gospels, so the, all the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how they all fit together in one linear timeline, that Luke 17, right at the end of verse 10, and in between verse 11, in that little section break there, there is something that happens in the book of John, and that's John chapter 11 which is the healing and the raising of Lazarus. So right at that time, when, when Jesus has raised Lazarus, then the chief priests and all the scribes have gone together and they said, okay, it is done. There is nothing more that we need in order to send this man to a death. And they started to meet amongst themselves to kill him at the, right after uh, Lazarus is raised from the dead. Right? So that was like the final nail, if you will, in Jesus' cross or his coffin for this plan of execution to happen. And then he comes as he's passing through on his way to Jerusalem. So he's, he knows he's on a purpose. He has a goal. He's not unsure of what's ahead. I think he very uh, intimately knows the Father's plan is to go to Jerusalem. But he is passing between Samaria and Galilee on his way, and he runs into these ten leprous men. So in verse 12 it says, As he entered a village, 
ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. Now that phrase there, stood at a distance, should uh, really give us some clues about what leprosy is. And so just real briefly to go through again, what is leprosy? Because it, it has a big part to play in this. Lepers were required by the Old Testament law to live outside of any camp or any village. If they were to enter that camp or in that village for any reason, then they were, had, because they were considered unclean people, they had to, in a public place, walk in a manner and proclaim that they were unclean. So they presented themselves with sackcloth, with you know, ashes. I mean, it was very noticeable just by their appearance that they were lepers. And they are proclaiming unclean, unclean, so that all know to stay away from these people. They were unclean and undesired people. And one commentator said, it's as if these men were walking into the village to announce their death. Is what it was like to be a leprous person in these days. The appearance was lep- of leprosy when it was uncovered was horrible. There were these, these, the skin that turned scaly and then those scaly areas of the skin eventually turned into these crustacean type uh, sores on the body and on the skin and then from there they got, became open wounds, just wide open wounds that eventually infected the whole entire body of the person. If that wasn't bad enough, the skin eventually, the skin disease eventually eats inward to the bones, causing this person to be crippled, and it takes the whole entire body, and ultimately death is imminent. And there was no noble cure for this disease. They were required to live together because leprosy, it wasn't contagious, but if they were just together, it's just easy to identify where these communities were. You know, misery loves company there, so they just, I guess, stuck them all together, and you guys just live amongst each other, so you at least have some sort of fellowship together. But other than that, they had nowhere to go. All in all, this is a very hopeless picture if you are living in this area as a leper. Death is knocking at the door, and it is a slow, painful process of death. Leprosy was considered in the New Testament to be the outward and visible sign of the innermost spiritual corruption of sin. So not only was this account, these people living together in this physical pain and hardship and death, which is imminent, but it also shows the heart that is apart from Christ. It is a slow, painful decay of death. So death in every way is living in this village. It is heavily resting in this community. But verse 12 says, There was one who passed by. In the darkness of despair, the light of life in Jesus passes through. And in verse 13, it says, And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. This is not the first time in Luke that Jesus has an encounter with leprous people. In Luke chapter 5, you don't have to flip there, uh, there's an account of a man who was covered. Scripture makes it very clear. He was covered in leprosy. And he cries out, like these men, to Jesus. And he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What a knowledge 
of the character and the glory of Jesus. This man uh, acknowledged, though he is dark and his, his sin and his, and his death is hanging on him, literally, he says, but I know you, Jesus, can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing, be cleansed. Now, I'm not saying this account traveled through. There's no account in Scripture that says, you know, and word traveled amongst the leprous uh, areas of, this, you know, of Galilee and Samaria that you know, this account happened. But I wonder if it did. Because these men, all together, seeing this man, again, from what Scripture says, no, no stately glory to him. He was born in a manger, and there's nothing beautiful necessarily about his appearance. But they caught their, his eye. As he's passing through, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They call him Master and ask for mercy. The term Master uh, just is directly translated as Supreme Commander. In a sense, it's saying you are the one who has control and the command to remove all sickness and disease. And he demonstrated that in Luke chapter 7. And it's demonstrated in Luke chapter 7 through a Roman centurion. He asked Jesus to come, but not even in person. He says, I'm not even worthy to come to see you in person. But he says, but I know that you have the command and the ability to heal. And Jesus says to him, just, and, or the man says to Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus praises that man. He says, not in all Israel do I, have I seen faith like this Roman centurion has. Because he understands the command and the authority that Jesus does have over all sickness, over all physical things. He is the master of all that is in this world. And he is the father of all mercy. And they get it right. And they, they ask him, have mercy on us. Mercy, again, just meaning that they would uh, receive not which that they, that they deserve. So have mercy on us. We deserve death. Death is imminent. It is knocking at the door. Please give us something other than this death that is coming for us. And Jesus has mercy on them. And I, I want to just uh, really look at Jesus in this passage as the intimate lover of all people. You know, these leprous people that would have been such a disgrace to talk to, to even speak to, to have any kind of relationship with, Jesus doesn't just pass them by. He turns to them, he says, verse 14, when he saw them, you know, he specifically looked upon them, and he speaks to them saying, go and show yourselves to the priests. He's not disgusted, He's not surprised. He's not impartial. But he is loving these men gently. And he says, go show yourself to the priest. And that's kind of an odd response. You would think he would say, like he did to the others, go and be cleansed. I am willing, be cleansed. But instead he says, go and show yourself to the priests. So why does he say that? One man writes that it was well understood by the spiritual leadership that when the Messiah came that he would have the authority to cast out sickness, to make the blind see, which he does in John 9, that he would have the explicit authority to cleanse lepers. Again, because there was no known cure. Like a man being born blind. No one had ever been healed from being born blind. So the Messiah come, he would do all these things, which no man had power over. 
The priests then would have been the men on the ground. They would have seen the ones who were healed, and then they would have been the ones who were telling the people that were coming to see them, hey, the Messiah is here. They were to be the ambassadors. So he tells them throughout the Gospels, go show yourself to the priests. Don't show anyone else, but go to the priests. Because the priests were the people then that were to receive the men that came to them, and that would have been a sure sign that the Messiah was living amongst them. And they would have been telling everyone, go, tell, tell everyone, the Messiah is here. They were to be serving as ambassadors. And the men, at this point, they have a choice. Right? They have a choice. Do we believe what Jesus has asked us to go do? Or do we do nothing? It's the choice of, to, to believe here. And in verse 14, at the end there, it says, And as they were going, they were cleansed. So there was a need of obedience, right, in which that cleansing were to happen. He says, Go to the priests, and as they were acting in faith, as they were, their hands and feet were moving, in a sense, of faith, in what Jesus said, in the process of their obedience, they were healed. They weren't healed immediately, but it was while they were going, they were cleansed. And what a day that would have been. What a day of joy. What a day of rejoicing. You know, I think of, in my life, the, the biggest change in my life has been when that, that night where I got LASIK eye surgery, I had, you know, negative five vision one day, went in for this five-minute surgery, both eyes done in five minutes, came out the next day, and I could see. And that was a glorious day. But you know what? That was nothing, absolutely nothing, compared to the misery and the life that these men knew being leprous. I mean, I had corrective lenses. I had contacts. I could live with it. These men were isolated, were living in darkness in every single way. What a day in which they would be celebrating. Except in verse 15, we find somewhat of the opposite. Verse 15 says, Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, falling on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. Only one returned and came back to Jesus. After such, such depth and such grace that God had given to these men, the account zooms in on one man. It wasn't in remission. It was gone. His leprosy was gone. And his response to Jesus is everything. He turned back. He came back to Jesus, praising him with a loud voice, glorifying God. And I think Luke gets it right. How do we glorify God? By coming back to a heart of thankfulness and praise to God via the blessings that he has given to us. By his very character and nature falls on his face this God who is full of grace and gives thanks to him. That is such a simple, simple verse, but it is incredibly profound of this man's response to Jesus. His response to Jesus shows a true heart of thankfulness and worship. But if there is anything more wild than just 
this man being healed and returning to Jesus with praise and thankfulness is the fact that nine didn't. That nine were healed and they did not come back and praise Jesus for the work that he had done in their life, for the grace that he had abundantly given to them. Nine just kept walking. And this next verse is sad. These three questions that Jesus asks break my heart. When he sees the one who was a Samaritan, we'll come back to that, Jesus answered and says, but were there not ten cleansed? There were nine. There there were nine. Where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And the heart of God breaks at the selfishness and the pride that is sown through the depth of sin in the heart of man. That we take the grace of God and we abuse it. We abuse it by living for ourselves. We abuse it by living in pride and taking the grace of God and running our own way with it. He says, there was just one who returned and this man we know a little bit more about this man, that he was a Samaritan. That he was a foreigner from Samaria. Now this is the second time so far in this section of Luke that we highlight the faith of a Samaritan. The first one was in Luke chapter 10 where we have the the famous passage of the Good Samaritan. The one, the one who stopped to help the man on the road. And Jesus says, this man is blessed. And then we have the second passage of a Samaritan and this would have been the worst of the worst, right? You're leprous, but then you're a Samaritan? You know, it couldn't get any lower than that. And it's this one, this foreigner, this Samaritan, not the, not the children of God, not the children of Abraham. It's the foreigner, the Samaritan, who is truly acting and living as a child of God ought to. Returning back to Jesus, praising him and giving thanks to him. He is the one that demonstrates what a child of God's attitude really is like. Yes, yeah, a, a Jew reading this would have been a slap in the face. You know, before we get too caught up on the nine who didn't return, I think we should be honest with ourselves and really ask ourselves, are we the nine? Do we live like the nine or do we live practically like the one who returns? And I have to be honest with you. I think more times than not in my life, I am like the nine. That the grace of God and his good gifts to me are abundant in my life. And yet, maybe in the moment, I may show a partial heart of thankfulness, but the rest of my attitude just takes it and keeps running. I just thought of just three really practical things in my life that I know are are applicable to mostly all of us. You know, the first one for me was just thinking of the good gifts that God has given to me just in my wife. Just in bringing Jewel into my life and the sacrificial love that she gives to me. She is the most consistent face of Jesus in my life, showing me his character by her attitude, behavior, and response to me. That I see the abundant grace of God just in her grace to me. 
And yet, how often do I just stop and say, thank you, God, for her, my spouse, as a gift from you? You know, there's little things that she does all throughout the year. Um, I'm so oblivious to most things. I'll just walk around and say, oh, man, that'd be cool to have. Like, oh, that, man, that'd be nice to, you know, maybe for Christmas or something like that. And I don't, I don't remember it. You know, they, it comes in my head. I say it, and it's going to keep going walking. Jewel keeps this mental note. She's like a steel trap, you know, of all that I've ever said. And then, like, six months later, my birthday comes up, and I open a gift. I haven't even given her really a list of anything. And there's that thing I said six months ago. She's like, remember when you said that really small passing comment? Like, no, not really. She's like, well, I did, and, and I got this for you. Incredible. Incredible. I don't even remember the things that I think I need, and yet she does and gives good gifts to me. I think of my ministry and my job at, at Torchbearers. I was a student there for two years, from 2009 to 2010, and then I went to CIU. I was there my third year of CIU, and I was applying just to be a high school Bible teacher, high school Bible teacher and a coach here in San Antonio and Winnipeg, just in different things. That's, that's the only thing I thought that my degree was leading me toward. I never even considered once that God would bring me to his hill to be at a gap year program, to be teaching at a place that the Lord used so much to change my life. It was just a random Tuesday night. I was sitting in a, in a dorm room with one of my best friends. We were just talking. It's 9 o'clock, and Charlie McCall calls me on my phone. I thought, oh boy, this is funny. Charlie's pocket dialing me. Like, out of the blue. I haven't, you know, I don't talk to him in the year. I see him in the summer for camp, but wow, this will be good. So I answer, you know, laughing. Hello? Connor, how's it going? I don't even know you're awake at this time of night, Charlie. And all of a sudden, it's serious. He actually meant to call me. And then he proposes that Jewel and I come on staff at his hill. It never once crossed my mind. And I get to his hill, I get into this ministry, I get to teach, I get to be a part of camp, I get to be a part of the outreach programs, I get to be around 18, 19 plus you know, year olds, and we get to play volleyball, we get to hang out on the student days with them. It is the best ministry, the best job on a teaching level and on a relational level than I could have ever asked for. I've hit the golden standard right out of university. It doesn't get better than this for me. But how often have I returned to the Lord and said, God, you did that. That was all you. That was nothing that I did. I didn't even apply. Still haven't even filled out any paperwork for that. Yeah. <laughs> that was all you, Lord. How often do I come back for the, the place specifically that God has me in my life right now? But most importantly, and this one should apply for all of us, how often do I come back to Jesus to praise him for waking up my life Waking up the hardness of my heart and changing it to a heart of flesh, a heart that feels, a heart that loves, a heart that can really know true joy, that can be at peace and content no matter what is happening in my life. Have I come back to him with a thankful heart for the salvation that he has sown in my heart, saving my soul for eternity from the confines and the death of sin, but also just every day, just saving me from my momentary light affliction of myself that I can so easily become entangled by, that he is faithful for all my trials and temptations every day. Do I come back to the Lord and thank him for the salvation that he has brought to me, the undeserved favor and gift of Jesus in my life? 
And I confess to you, again, more often than not, I'm denying. I have taken the gift. Thank you, Jesus. See you in heaven. And I just go on my way. God's salvation is that we would know him intimately every minute of every day. In all things that we do, we're walking in dependence upon him. This is the life that Jesus demonstrated for us. That in everything I do and everything I say, I do in absolute dependence upon the Father. This is the life that Jesus has demonstrated for us as Christians to be walking in dependence and relationship and intimacy with him. When was the last time we returned to Jesus? We came back. We turned back with a heart of praise and thankfulness for that he is a great God and a great king. Psalm 107, again, the psalmist says in these two verses, 21 through 22, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for the wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. I really like the wording in verse 22. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. You know, thankfulness, to come back to the Lord is a sacrifice, right? We're, we're sacrificing ourselves. right? That means we're taking glory away from the all-important I, me, number one. And it's saying, you didn't deserve this. There was nothing you did that warranted this gift of God. It is a sacrifice. We lay it on the altar to God, our praise and our worship, testifying He has done. We love because God first loved us. We have life because He is the author of life and has sent Jesus, the light of life, into our life. Let us tell the wonders to the sons of men. We have all seen the wonder of God, chiefly His creation. We are around it every single day. We see the wonder of him holding this world together, the glue which holds all things together, and the wonder of the spirit of God that he has given to us that lives within us for life and godliness. To come back to this passage here in Luke, the Samaritan, the Samaritan did not forget to remember the one who changed his life. He did not forget to remember the one who changed his life. You know, he, he knew physical blessing. He was healed, right? It, it says that when he saw that he had been healed, so physically he was healed, that grace was given to him, but physical blessing coupled with a heart of thankfulness, a heart of glorifying the Lord when he comes back, He says, Jesus says to him in verse 19, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. I think this is the blessing of not just your faith has made you well physically, but your faith has made you well from the innermost of your very being. You have been cleansed, not just physically, not just a physical gift given, but your heart has been cleansed. The greater need has been met. You are well so that you can say it is well with my soul. And not just with my skin. He is a man who is blessed. Because it is the heart that God prospers. Blessed, as the Amplified says, happy enough to be envied, 
spiritually prosperous with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of your outward circumstances. This is a man who is to be envied because he was spiritually prosperous with God's joy and favor in salvation. Hebrews 13, verse 15, reminds us, Through him, that is Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. I'll read that again. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. How do we praise the Lord with a sacrifice? It is to come back to his presence. And with our words, with our actions, give thanks and praise to his name. Out of our heart, we speak. Right? This, is what Matthew, this is what Jesus says to us in Matthew. Out of man's hearts comes the words of his mouth. So out of the change of our heart should be resulting in the praise of Jesus' name on our lips for all that he has done to, for us and all that he is to us. The heart of the one who has turned back to Jesus pleases the Lord more than the feet of obedience of the nine. The one who came back with a heart of praise Please the Lord more than the nine who were healed because the glory of God is being seen in that person's life and known intimately in that one person's life rather than just the nine. In Christ, this one man who did not forget to remember the one who changed his life in return found a heart of worship. His physical blessing was given, but his heart was well. Which then brings us to the nine. What about the nine? The nine who forgot to remember. They forgot to remember the one who changed their life. What about these nine? What's true of them? Well, they're still healed. It doesn't say that all of a sudden leprosy came back and was fiercer than it ever was. No, I think from this passage, they are still still living in the grace of God, experiencing the grace of God by their physical healing, but their heart is not knowing the intimacy and oneness and worship in which they have been designed to know. They were not just designed to have our needs met, our physical needs satisfied, but our heart to be healed by Christ. So they experienced physical blessing, but their physical blessing was coupled with a heart of apathy. It was coupled with a heart of selfishness. Yeah, they had temporal gain, but they lose the intimacy and oneness that they can know with Christ Jesus. Warren Wiersbe said and says in his commentaries, too often we are content to enjoy the gift, but we forget the giver. We are quick to pray, but we are slow to praise. Amen. Amen to that. We are quick to pray, but we are slow to praise. The danger of an ungrateful and unthankful heart is that really it opens us up to a multitude of sin. The chief of that being pride. The chief of that directing our praise to an unworthy suitor. You know, I think when we, when we don't come back to Christ and give praise to Him with thankfulness and joy, then we begin to believe a lie that, you know, maybe medicine healed us. Or that doctor 
healed us. Or, you know, this success we've had is because of my hard work and my grit and determination and my attitude. It's from my family background. We can fill all these different things in when we don't praise the one who is the giver of all good things. The chief of the sin is that we believe that we have given this life to ourselves. And we would never dare to say that. We would never dare say that. But it's what is our action showing of what we believe. It's not what we have that brings us joy. We need to be reminded that Jesus is our joy. And if anything didn't happen that we think that it should have, it's because God has a bigger and a better plan for us. All ten of these men had a problem. They were all leprous. All ten experienced the grace of God. They were healed as they went. Only one understood that grace is an undeserved gift of life and came back to the one, the giver of all good gifts, to know the intimacy of worship. Each one of you have experienced the grace of God. Every single person in this world has experienced the grace of God. They woke up today. They know life. And they're not struck down today. That all of us, you know, apart from Christ, are not just struck down even before we woke up. That is the grace of God, that he has allowed us to breathe and to live and to be amongst his people and to be amongst his creation. But are we acting like the nine or are we acting like the one? I hope you just think, what are the good things, what are the good gifts that God has given to us? Friends, job, marriages, children. He has given those. God is the giver of all good things, James says. God gave that to you. And it's great. It is in his grace that he gave. You can enjoy those things apart from Christ. And you will enjoy them to a degree. You will enjoy them to a degree. But if we come back to Jesus with a heart of praise and thankfulness for those friends, jobs, marriages, children, fill in the blank. You come back and thank the Lord for those. And you will enjoy those gifts as he is designed to give them. You will enjoy them as he is always designed for them to be enjoyed. Because it starts with a heart that says, God, you've done this. And I praise you for this. So we've each received grace every day. It is the grace of God. The question then becomes, are we worshiping in the grace of God? By coming back and knowing, praising, and glorifying God for all that he has done and all that he is. I have just a quote. I have no idea where I got it from. Just a really simple, easy thing that I just keep on my heart and my mind. It is the thankful heart that produces the joyful Christian. Joy and thankfulness cannot be separated together. You cannot separate them. They are one in themselves. A thankful heart produces a joyful Christian. Joy that cannot be robbed and taken from us. Joy, as Nehemiah says, that is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So may his joy be our strength through our hearts of thankfulness to him that I pray that we are like the one, that we return to Jesus today and we put all thanks and praise for all that he has done and all that he is at his feet as he is worthy of. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we just pause in our days, in our week, in our lives, Lord, for this very simple reminder, God, to come back to you, to return to you with our praise and our worship. Father, I pray that the heart of ungratefulness, of unthankfulness, of selfishness and pride would not be given any room in our hearts. God, that we would believe the lie that we have given to ourselves what we have. God, in anything that has happened to us and anything that hasn't happened to us, that we would come back to you with a heart of thankfulness and say, God, you know. You knew this long before I even experienced this. You are the one that holds all things in the palm of your hand. And if you hold all things in the palm of your hand, you are able to work all things together for your good in my simple life. Lord, even just the one person, the one heart that comes back with praise and thankfulness to you yields the crop of over a hundred. Lord, just even just in one life, one attitude of praise and thankfulness has a tremendous testimony. It creates oneness and intimacy that we can experience with you. God, and also is a beautiful testimony of others to others that are around us. So Lord, just put your finger into our lives. Where have we gone astray? Where have we fallen short? Lord, and lead us back into your eternal and good presence with a heart of praise. In your name we pray, amen.